In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Strings Pod. My name's Hunter Mulcair and this is a podcast about psychology. On the show today, it's a very special episode. I'm going to continue on with the interview vibe that we were going with with Psychology Week. And we're going to be talking about sports psychology and mental conditioning. So I have a guest on the show, Michael Inglis. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Hunter. How are you? Yeah, very good. So I decided to get Michael on. He's a sports psychologist. Just a little bit of background about that. He's the uh, co-director and founder of The Mind Room, which is a practice in Collingwood in Melbourne. He's the lead sports psychologist there. So just to kind of give you a bit of a a CV, he's worked for North Melbourne Football Club, so AFL Football Club, the Rebels Rugby Union Team, done work for the AFL Players Association, the Rugby Union Players Association, the Professional Football Association, so that's soccer, and the Holden Women's Cycling Team, and also Sockfall Victoria. So pretty experienced, i got to say. (laughs) So decided to get Michael on the show because... We've been focusing a lot through the personality disorders series on sort of deficit models of psychology and talking about you know pathology quite a lot. And I thought it'd be kind of quite interesting to talk about a different branch of psychology uh, and sort of one that's an emerging field and something that I don't really know very much about. So we're going to talk, have a good long chat about sports psychology and how that can kind of be applied and sort of some of the more recent sort of changes and movements within that field. But before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that if you like the show, please subscribe to the show. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can check out our website, twoshrinkspod.com, follow us on Twitter, all that kind of jazz. And also just to thank everybody who listened to the Psychology Week interviews. We had a really, really good response to that. And uh, it was a lot of fun doing it and a lot of work. And if you're not sure which of those interviews you want to listen to, then you can go back and check our short preview. I think it's like a three, four minute episode. And we kind of surmise it for you. So you can just listen to that and then choose one you like. So that's about it. So Michael. Hey Hunter. Thanks for having me on. So Michael and I worked together many, many years ago in uh, drug and alcohol Mm. in the really dodgy part of the inner city. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and sort of since since then, uh, I've moved into oncology and you've kind of moved into sports psych more yep. and that kind of stuff. So Drug and alcohol was a good grounding for us both. <laughs> it definitely was. I think we uh, both ended up pretty, a lot tougher. <laughs> yes, more robust. <laughs> more robust. There's <laughs> clinicians on the other side of that. Mm. So I was thinking maybe a good place to start would be what's sports psychology and like how's that different to say health psychology, clinical psychology? Yeah, look, I think, yeah, you know, you talked about the different vibe of what type of psychology sports psychology is. But I mean, I think in the end, no matter what psychology we're talking about, we're dealing with people. So when we're dealing with people, we're still dealing with all the other clinical issues you would in any other environment, uh, space, groups, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So you, know, you talked about the personality disorders before or any other kind of clinical illnesses, such as what you see every day, like depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth. Um, yep. They present themselves. But yeah, like I sort of said on, on other podcasts, you know, People with cancer have marital problems and yep. other problems and that kind of stuff. Yep. And same thing with sports players, I guess. Yeah, exactly right. So, so it's generally, it's still very much the half of what we do, you know, the people that kind of present with those kind of clinical issues. I guess the thing that sets us differently to the other type of psychologists are 
we we're trained to provide performance enhancing mental skills so um we're not responding to a deficiency we're actually going okay how do we give you potential skills that will improve your performance or maximize your performance so as you would do in terms of training the body um, with your physical training whether it be in the gym or whatever that might be um, or technical skills you can do the same thing with the mind and so what sports psychologists would like to do is actually teach the athletes coaches support staff whatever that might be yeah on how they can engage that component with the athletes yeah because you can like already think about i can think about say watching the australian open and sort of seeing certain players at critical moments you can sort of see them kind of you can see that the pressure gets to them mm. and i mean and that's not being critical like yeah. like i I, I mean, I can barely bounce a ball with one hand. Like, but the, you know, you could sort of see the role of that. I mean, I remember mm. one one match where someone was playing up against the world number one, and whenever this challenger, you know, started to win, mm. he this guy actually just started to wig out. Mm. It was like, oh my gosh, and we and then yeah. and then and then the the number one would kind of regain ground. Yeah, and eventually won the match. That kind of stuff. Yeah, I and mean, that's an interesting part when, you know, back to belief, you know, belief that I actually can do it and yeah. or the imposter syndrome of I deserve to win this as well because sometimes we have some rigid ideas in my mind. I'm playing the number one, so therefore I can't win um, or he can't be beaten because he might even be an idol of mine. So, wow, yeah, right. Yeah, sometimes really... In fact, I actually had a tennis player, he's actually an interesting, interesting guy, a tennis player recently come and see me and... He, he reflected over this tournament. He went on and he said, oh, you know, I won this and got to the third round. but And then I lost to this player, ranked, I think, 200th in Australia or something like that, which was higher than him. And um, I said, oh, how did you feel about that? Typical psychology question. And uh, he's like, oh, well, you know, he's, he's ranked better than me, so I guess that's to be expected. And I had to cut him short right there and go, excuse me? <laughs> like, what you, did you just hear yourself say that? Yeah. And he didn't, and then when I stopped and replayed it to him, actually realize is it's a very rigid idea that because your ranking is higher therefore i you know it's okay that i lose to this person yes and um, i think it's only our second or third session and i said okay as part of working with me it's important that you challenge this belief that you already have in your head mm. you go every time you go on court you have this idea that you will or can at your best if you play at your best will beat the other person yeah it doesn't matter what their ranking is. And and likewise, are losing because the danger is also when you're playing people below you in rankings. Mm. means I don't have to really be at my best. I can go out the night before or I can do have to do the same warm-up. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. So, can, it causes complacency as well. Yep. Or I could imagine it could cause, like, say, post, say, if you do lose to a challenger who is more lowly ranked. Mm. I guess tennis is a great example because mm. they do have clear ranking. Yeah, they do. Right? That's right. That could trigger like a really catastrophic spiral mm. around kind of like, oh my God, how did this happen? Yeah. I'm no good. And kind of that would really, really impact on them going going ahead, going forward. And I think what's also interesting about sports psychology is the sports themselves. Yeah. So what I find, and I think, you know, people ask me, that one of the more common questions is how important is sports knowledge? Yeah to be a sports psychologist and, yeah. and I think it is and because for some of these reasons how you understand the game yeah. so for example if you ever look at tennis stats and you even between a player let's say they win in straight sets you know 6-3 6-3 for example yeah. a lot of the time the amount of points won like total points won between the two players will be a differential of 3 wow yeah right and so you get this idea that you know, it's a very comprehensive win and but what you actually identify is the actual point difference differential is very low mm. 
what does this tell us? That the better players know how to win the important points. Yeah. So in tennis, you actually can throw away points. It doesn't really matter because they don't contribute to anything when you win a game or a set. Yeah. Like ju- a juice game to a like 40 love game. It's still it's, a game. It's still, yeah. still equals the same thing. But what you actually identify, what you actually realize is the best players win the points that count the most. Mm. 30, 40, advantage, yeah. set point, yeah. break point. They're the ones where their game actually rises. And the ones the the ones lower ranked find it more difficult. Yeah, right. Mm. And so I guess there's an opening there to kind of go, all right, how can psychology kind of play into that? Because mm. I mean, I guess there's obviously like the, the physical side, the training side, the skill set side, and mm. I don't know whatever for whatever mm. else. Mm. So you were telling me a little bit about that you run a say like a, a mental conditioning program. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and that's for that kind of stuff. It absolutely, I mean, that's a really nice example. So, I mean, I guess the the premise of it in terms of, for the example we we're just talking about in tennis, and I and I actually asked them this question in the first session of the program, which is a group program, and the athletes can be ranged from different sports. But I go, tell me, tell me when you're at your best, and tell me how often you're at your best, and I ask them to think about when they perform at their best. Yeah. And sometimes I even ask them to graph them their last five or six or ten performances, whatever they might be. And the next question is, okay, so the, the, the differential in your great your, your greater performance, was it physical, was it technical, was it mental, and so on and so forth. Mm. And really what we identify is the physical ability hadn't changed, their talent hadn't changed, mm. their training regime hadn't changed. Mm. So what does it put it down to? It comes back to the mental side of things. Yeah. So how they perform against one player versus the next versus the next is generally mental fluctuations. Yeah, right. Mm. How interesting! How interesting! So, give me the the elevator statement on uh, <laughs> on this mental conditioning program before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts. Yeah, well, I mean, I was inspired by doing this program when I was at an AFL club, and uh, I did my first preseason there, and I realised that between November and February, they physically trained extremely hard, and I was like, okay, so what do I what do I contribute to this? You know, mm-hmm. so they're physically conditioned to be able to perform during the year. And I thought, well, of course, the obvious question as a psychologist in the club is, so what are they doing mentally to do so? Mm. So, okay, what would I, if I was to, if I was in the ideal world for this group, how could I get them most mentally robust and resilient for the season to come ahead? Yeah. What do they need to do? So um, I'm thinking like the opening of like Full Metal Jacket. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Screaming abuse at them. No. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe there's one way if you want to go about it. I guess we'll teach some sort of uh, <laughs> some sort of armory in terms of how to handle that. Yeah. Although, to be fair, the, I think the AFL scene has changed these days in terms of how they work with the athletes and yeah. communicate. But yeah, so really, that was my that was my inspiration, if you like. So I thought, well, okay, how do they cope with all the doubts and the difficulty of emotions they go through and the spotlight they endure and so on and so forth. Yeah. But what I also kind of thought about is being very CBT trained as a sports psychologist. So very cognitive behaviorally trained, yeah. Yep. All we talk about is how to think and feel right and how do we get to find our ways into the zone, you know? And my kind of frustration working with athletes was, well, it was very rare, very beautiful when it was there, but very rare of getting athletes into that zone. And so I realized that maybe we got this wrong, that we were trying to change an athlete's state to get perfect, get them thinking right and feeling right, mm. to get the perfect result. Yeah, but that's that was it happened once occasionally and didn't happen often enough. I thought. And imagine, and yeah, when that <laughs> doesn't happen, 
I guess that kind of gets you get a bit of criticism, self criticism. Oh, I didn't get in, didn't, I didn't get into the zone again. I didn't get into the zone. Again. Yes, and well, and it's and it kind of flips around that whole positive self talk as well, which is gets banded around any self help book you go into a bookstore or out, but and how everyone wants to be positive, but what happens when it doesn't work? I'm just I mean, how many athletes would sit there to themselves and going, I'm the best. I'm going to win this. I'm going to you know, I'm going to achieve success. Blah blah blah. So what happens when you don't? Because you lose, like I mean, eventually, eventually you will. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So for me, I, I thought, well, okay, really about when I think about mental conditioning or building more resilience for for athletes, it's about how to cope with the self doubt, yeah. how to cope it when you're really down on yourself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how to cope when you're struggling. That makes you mentally conditioned as you would physically conditioned when you're fatigued, tired. How do you keep pushing? Yeah. Mentally, when you've had enough, or you say your body says it's had enough, how do you keep pushing? So for me, the mental conditioning program was about that. Yeah. So, you know, what I try and teach is we have these internal states, our mind, our thoughts, you know, what our mind tells us, um, emotions, how we feel, and physical sensations, what our body tells us. Yeah. And as athletes, that's really important. We're highly physical and the body, particularly around fatigue and pain and so on, tells our mind different things typically stop (laughs) so how do we deal with these internal states because these are the things that are going on all the time yeah as people anyway but as athletes they're really firing off but how do we cope with those and how do we regulate those while still performing at our best yeah because you could you could imagine like all right i'm playing whatever sport afl Mm. you know soccer tennis whatever and you're playing in the match you get and you start to get a niggle like let's see about the physical sensation mm. and then and then you could already start to, doubt could come in at that point like yeah. so we're not talking about the opponent at that point it's more about like internally driven yep. but yeah you could that that could be i guess like one scenario you would come across yeah, like, yeah. well uh, a good example of that is um i got a swimmer who's actually going up through the ranks really well in the juniors and about to hit his open um kind of in the open ranks um yep. and we we spoke about this so how the, the, the mind drive, I talk about the mind drive in the body. So the body doesn't do anything without the mind telling it to. Yep. So it's a really nice way to talk to athletes about the importance of mental work. But in reality, you know, in a sport like swimming, which is highly physical, the body is also telling the mind. Yeah, yeah. And particularly like in his type of event or most swimming events, fatigue will sit in eventually. So it'll be the last 50 or 100, it'll be the last 50 or the 200, whatever it might be. And so I tell them they've actually got a choice because really what the body's telling the mind to do is stop. I'm suffering. I need to recharge. Um, yeah, stop and stop or slow down. Or yeah, because yeah, yeah. the lactic's burning or you need to rest or recharge or whatever it might be. And I see that point you've got a choice. You can listen to the body, which is saying stop, or you can keep on pushing. And that's actually a mental choice that you make. And typically the ones that make the choice of I'm prepared to push myself, that's why there's something quite sadistic about athletes sometimes. Mm. Um, the ones that are prepared to keep on pushing are the ones that generally succeed the most. Yeah. Mm. So it's the the program is really about how to regulate those internal states. Yeah. As in in a sense of I try and describe it as neutralizing it. You know, so I actually I actually, the one of my favorite phrases I use with them is get your head out of your body's way. Okay. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is it kind of like so sitting with like okay look this is this is the fatigue feeling that's coming on this is the, that that body state mm. that negative body state mm. that's sending me a signal yeah but it's like do I have to necessarily attend to that that's or right do I necessarily have to do anything about that that's right at the moment yeah, yeah. yeah right so when I asked them about their best I in, when I asked them about their best performance but I also asked them about their worst performance as mm. well this is actually one of my favourite exercises to do yeah. 
And typically when I ask them about their best performances, they'll go and I ask them what their thoughts were and what their emotions and their physical sensations, those three internal states. I, um, I generally get very little. I go, I don't know, it just happened. Um, yep. I can't really describe it. I felt light and energetic and it all felt but all fairly automatic. Instincts is another word I kind of hear. If I ask them about their worst performance, they can tell me every single thought they had all their different emotions yep. and how every single thing hurt in their body. Yep. <laughs> Why? Because they're attending to that. They're, they're kind of focused on all those internal states. Yeah. Whereas when they're um, performing at their best, they're actually action focused. They're task, they're task orientated. Mm. They're kind of focused on where they need to position, how to, they look focusing on the ball. They're focusing on how they need to, their technical cues or whatever it might be. Yeah. So all their attention is outwards yeah. to where they need it to be. So it's really, really interesting. So what I'm saying, it kind of supports what I'm saying. When we're at our best, those internal states actually really aren't playing. We're not connecting with them. Yeah. Or, 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 or we're managing them quite well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I, so I already start to think about say obviously cancer my cancer world mm. where i where i work as an oncology psychologist and sort of thinking about how in that environment people have to come into treatment often do scary treatments have to come into appointments where they're getting scam results but also also still have to run the rest of their lives and the the individuals that manage well in those environments are the ones that are able to kind of partial out their responsibilities and kind mm. of go all right well i've i've done okay I've, I've looked after the children today and i've got this thing and okay yes i'm feeling sick but i still need to do these things and mm. you know, i can still get in and yeah there's a kind of a like a, a more cohesive way of managing yeah. like and if you do sit and talk to them yeah and you get them to talk about what's going on for them they will tell you oh, yeah so look i've got all this awful stuff going on inside yeah. me but they're able to kind of contain it somehow. yeah yeah whereas and what's interesting in the oncology world is that they you know, it's not, there's not a sort of a linear relationship between distress and how bad someone's disease is. There's always no relationship. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and so it's all about that kind of, I guess that interpretation of what's going on for them, which I think, which is sort of, I'm not sure if you're getting the link, but like (laughs) it's making sense in my mind where there's like the people who perform at their best are the ones that can kind of, I guess, manage what's going on for them. Yeah, those internal states. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not like they're not, you know, and we do this in society, don't we? Yeah. Like if someone presents to us, you know, to in your situation, you know, they've got tears rolling down their eyes and they're, they're obviously struggling. We'll kind of, we'll say to them, what's wrong? Or can we get you something? Or you tend to it. Now, if someone presented and go, okay, I need to be here for treatment and they just ask that question and where do I need to go and what do I need to do? And thanks for that and see you later. Yeah. We make the assumption that they're coping quite well. Yeah. And they are, but it's not like the, the internal states aren't firing. No, that's right. It's not like they, it's not like they're worrying sick about their health or, you know, they're feeling a lot of embarrassment about what they're going through or shame or guilt or whatever, anxiety, whatever that might be. But, but, but we just look at them on face value, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's really interesting. Mm. So give us a rundown on sort of like the, the, the bones of the bones of it. It's a it's a course like what six session or ten yeah. session, like group, individual, what's the what's So it's the in story? it's in groups. So sometimes I'll do it within teams. So they'll actually know each other, which is quite nice because they learn it's quite an intimate spot and space because it really relies on their sharing about all their I guess internal traits that are internal states that they're struggling with. You yeah. know. So it can be quite bonding and as a as a secondary component to it. But when I run at the mine room, for example, um, the sports can come from different. They can come from different sports. Yeah. 
but I just find that really interesting as well because they all get to share because every every sport's unique to themselves in terms of how they run. You know, is it team versus individual? Is it close versus open? Continuous versus stop start? You know, mm. so they can learn different things from each other as yeah. well. So I actually don't mind that as a bit of a another again secondary component. Yeah. It's um, not, not unlike with like drug and alcohol work where you get different people at different phases of their recovery, recovery yeah. and they can learn different things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's a, and well, in terms of that too, you get the, the older senior kind of players who um, really, they actually appreciate this because they've actually been to that younger phase and realize that it can be a struggle. And then, yeah, sometimes you get the younger guys first coming and going, oh, I don't need this. I mean, my talent will be enough, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they don't do the homework and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. You get that component. But yeah, six sessions, uh, 90 minutes per session and highly skill-based as well. It's the most important thing. I mean, the the most important skill and there's a different range to it and it's a bit different to how we probably know it when we're in psychology world, but it is a lot of mindfulness-based skills. Yeah. So both the formal practice, but in sport, you have to learn how to do it informally. Yeah, right. Yeah. So explain that for people who wouldn't know what you're talking about. Okay. So, I mean, I'm imagining formal pra- formal mindfulness practice is like uh, you, you know, if you Google mindfulness or if you put on YouTube mindfulness, mm. then you'll get a whole stuff about someone playing, you know, pay attention to your breath and pay yeah. attention to your surroundings. Yeah. There's that activity around what, like, you know, eat a sultana really, really slowly. <laughs> what are all the sensations, that kind of stuff. That's yep, like that's the right. classic formal mindfulness. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, where the informal practice is actually doing it in action. Yeah. And so what I think the forgotten piece around mindfulness is not about just awareness, but it's attention. Yeah. So the number one psychological concept that athletes struggle with is concentration. And I did a recent group reason. This is a professional group. These are professional athletes. And I asked them, and there's about between 15 in the room, and I asked them to write down the percentage they believe they're fully focused in the game. Yeah. And the average of the 15 professional players who have been doing this for years was 45% concentration yeah, right. levels. Yeah, right. As a, so the mindful attention is a very forgotten piece. So how do they stay on cue mm. continuously? And yeah. it's a continuous sport. Yeah. So that's, as again, every sport has its own uh, little components, but it's a continuous sport that goes for 90 minutes. So how do they stay on track for 90 minutes versus a diver, for example? Yeah. Six attempts, they need to concentrate for about 20 seconds Yeah, with long breaks in between. Yeah. But they're also challenged by the fact that there's long breaks in between. Yeah. 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 It's, it, yeah, it's, it, it's really, really interesting when you start to break that down and mm. kind of think about like, you know, how is that learned and how do they all manage that and that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah. Because you, you sort of, anything about say like some events, it's one event and it's done. Mm. You know, yep. like, like a sprinter or yep. a, like sort of the track cyclist, that yep. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Versus say, you know, uh, a soccer match, a football match that is going to go for a long time. Yeah. If, if you eff it up, yeah. then potentially you've got another chance at it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or that you, if for some of them, they'll, oh, you might do it again. You know, <laughs> 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 depending on the, again, again, this is what the conditioning's about, right? Because yeah. errors are, this is, you know, one of my greatest reflections out of this as well is actually the best make as many mistakes and have as much self doubt as anyone, mm. which reinforces the idea of mental conditioning. Now, a lot of these guys just do it quite naturally anyway because of their personality type or something that they've evolved over time. But those guys just move on better. It's not that they make less mistakes. It's not because they have less self-doubt. They actually just, they endure and cope better Mm. and able to move on and put their attention back to where they needed to be quicker. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. Like you put it back to, it's like, oh, I've stuffed up that. Okay. Well, I'm just going to refocus on what I'm doing. Yeah. 
one of my um one of my favorite stories is a is a professional AFL player who said he thought during his second quarter of a game he made some sort of mistake and one of their biggest fears was reviews with coaches on Monday yeah. of their game which is what they what they all do and he just went to himself that is going to look absolutely terrible my <laughs> review and he couldn't get it out of his head he yeah. was so stuck for the rest of the game yeah that the error he made, he virtually was non-existent after that. Like yeah. mentally, he was out. Yeah. And but the the humorous part in, in reflection is he then actually saw the vision on Monday. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But his inability to be able to move on from that and mentally, it was just like it. It just it killed him. It killed his whole game. Mm. And he just thought to himself, "What a waste! I yeah. just wasted the whole two and a half quarters worrying about something that wasn't that bad." Yeah. And and that's such a natural response because mm. you can stuff something up at work mm. and kind of think, "Oh, you know, geez, my manager's going to be mm. like right into me about <laughs> that." See the manager the next day and like, "Oh yeah, whatever." So, like, you yeah. Know. But yeah. yeah, you can totally lose productivity. I guess. Yep. Yeah. So it's a very natural, natural kind of response. So tell me, in, you said very skills based. So mm. talk us through that just a little bit. There's forms of mindfulness I introduce as well, so both formal and informal. But I try and get them to engage with how do they, how do they, I mean, I call it ground, some people call it grounding, like in America it's called grounding. Yeah. I call it more like centering. How do they recenter on tasks when their concentration lapses? Yeah. So, you know, you talk about that more formal practice of focus on the breath and so on and so forth, but your mind wanders. Yeah. And the whole idea is bringing the attention back again. It's a bit similar. It's the training of how do you stay focused more and more regularly. A task at hand. Mm. Yeah. So, is it sort of sport specific in terms of that, or is it individual, or is it? It can be. I mean, sometimes you got to work out kind of what works for them. So, for example, you know, you kind of use the Sultana one. I actually found one particular player. You know, he grabs a bit of grass off the field and smells it yep. as a way of recentering. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Right. But again, it depends on the sport you play because if it's continuous, you don't have time to. <laughs> Peel the grass and go it's through like, all the I'm senses. Just, I'm just gonna. <laughs> I'm in, the, in the MCG. I'm just gonna. Oh, shit, yeah, yeah. yeah a cricket ball coming at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, all oh, cricket's actually a really good example. Yep. As well, because it's such a long game, so mental fatigue is, and so they had and there's big breaks. Yeah. You know, tennis we talked about before as well. Yeah, and like, and also like, you, if you watch cricket, like a lot of the wickets essentially often come from like just flat out mistakes. Yep. From somebody. Oh, but you actually, well, a good cricket example is drinks breaks or any kind of tea break. Yeah. So they're very batsmen, particularly more vulnerable first over after a break. Yeah, right. Because they're mm. not back into it. Yeah. They yeah. haven't switched back on. Yeah. yeah they're mm. not sort of match fit, essentially. No. Like, no. like I always think about that. Yeah. In terms of like, if I've had a break from looking after my kids <laughs> and then like that next day, I mean, I'm sure there's other stuff going on, mm. but it just... You're not, your head's not there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. And I think the other thing I try and do in my program is talk about, you know, be really how to be process focused. Okay. You know, sport is a very outcome focused world. It's about win, loss, how well did I rank or lose or where did I finish and yeah. so on and so forth. And so, and that's the, that's the nature of what we live in, in terms of sport and performance. Um, but what I really like about the mental conditioning is it actually gives you an opportunity to focus on that process and how you want to be. Yeah. So instead of what you want to achieve, it focuses on how. Yeah. So it sort of takes it. You can already hear that that would take the pressure off a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So and I really like the idea because yeah, if they actually reflect on you know how they want to be. So I think the Australian cricket team is a pretty good talking point right now in terms of what they've kind of been through in terms of culture. But you know, it was all about getting the getting the end result, no matter how 
it was going to get there. And that's what we see in kind of drug doping as well with athletes. Mm. Now, if you ask them at the start of their career about how do they want to be, none of them want to be remembered as a cheat mm. or to undermine the whole system to win. It'd be all about, well, I want to do it in an honest way and I want to do it through hard work and perseverance. Or I want to have, have fun. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I want to develop you know, good team relationships or whatever they might be. But their, their, their values change along the way, don't they? Mm. Or they go into a culture of a win at all costs or whatever that might be and get absorbed by that, which is mm. what I think the Australian cricket team would have done. And maybe it seems like sports like cycling and you know, athletics and so on, where it just became all costs or their career was on, on the line. Yeah. So what we do in this is the how. So what we really focus on is performance values. You know, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be... What do you want to be known for? How do you want to be known for? Not about your results. That's a fairly classic sort of positive psychology Mm. approach, isn't it? Yeah. Like, what are your values? Mm. What's really important to you? Mm. Let's flesh that out. Yeah. And what I... Yeah, I like how it releases that pressure of having to be a success story. You know, for for you who does a bit of recreational running, you you could get really caught up about what time you do your 10K run in. But Mm. if I said to you, how do you want to run your 10Ks? What would you say? Oh, I guess I I like feeling good when I run. Yeah. Yeah, You know, and I kind of, and I like sort of, I like it when I can get a bit of a better time, but I like knowing I've kind of done a solid, you know, solid workout, I think is probably the... Yeah, these are the kind of things that come to mind. Yeah, so I imagine someone like yourself is you probably appreciate the journey of getting to the 10k run. Yeah. So you'd be out there training three times a week for six weeks or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you just appreciate the fact that you did that. You actually followed, you know, your schedule. I went, you know, the last six weeks I trained three times a week. Yeah. I got my mileage up to 20, up to 25k's. Yeah, a week. yeah. Like when I think about it, like, like what I look at on my running app is like how many k's I did. Mm. It's not really the times because mm. the times are so variable. Yeah, for, for me for whatever reason but yeah it's about the you know did I enjoy it did, and like and, and that's the purpose of it I guess yeah yeah and you go well yeah my mood was better I slept better yeah my diet improved yeah you know, I lost a couple of kilos so there's you know you, it's the journey part of it and I and I think you know I look at you know an AFL is a, a good sport to use I mean it's obviously a big one in Melbourne but kind of this weird component where the winner, there's one winner out of 18 teams. They generally celebrate for about a week, you know? Yeah. But after that, they kind of all go back and start again. And so it's it's going to be very rare for them. They're going to be only one winner per year. Mm. And they may not even get that through their whole 10 to 15 year career at best. Mm. And even if they do, it kind of starts again <laughs> in about a month's time and they all start back to normal again in terms of scratch or starting again. So if you don't enjoy the journey of it all, like enjoy the actual part of being an athlete and building towards something yeah. and developing... Yeah or, you know, a strong characteristic along the way, then you're not going to get everything you want out of it either. No, no. and you won't persist within the sport. No. I mean, and, and I, my mind, like I listen to a lot of music and to my mind, like I think about like bands that would be the same thing. It's so rare to become a huge big hit or, mm. and if you are, that time in the light could be very short. Mm. And, you know, so it's the people, the bands that kind of, really really enjoy doing what they're doing Hmm. they're the ones that stick it out yeah they're the ones that are more likely to kind of do it because it kind of fits within their own ethos and and how they like to do stuff yeah and i think you make a really good point when you're talking about enjoyment and fun because i think we've come full circle in professional sports world like i think we got to this whole idea was always amateur and then we grew didn't we in the 80s 90s 2000s of okay professional sport developing yeah but now we're coming back again going okay so driving them here and forcing them to be here 45 hours a week to train it's not always working here. So now we're just looking at, okay, how do we make it more lighter, more mm. fun, more enjoyable? I think we're, 
I think we're getting to that point. Um, yeah. If you start looking at teams now, they'll talk about things they do behind the scenes to have more of a laugh and lighten the process up and get more enjoyment out of it. Yeah, because it's certainly... I mean, I'm, I'm a very much an outsider in terms of sport, but mm. it certainly appears that there there has been a, like a, a weight, mm. a seriousness mm. to everything. Yeah. You know, and there's this, I think in AFL particularly, you could see, see it that the players became incredibly fit yeah like from say yeah. from the 80s to now yeah you know there's that real pressure on physique and all that kind of stuff yeah and, and i could imagine at some point that's it's a bit boring yeah 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 to be doing weights all the time yeah but also that everyone's doing it so yeah. what's the advantage you know yeah. you're, they're all fit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, i mean they're, they're all fit so i think the advantage now is like how many tats you've got <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> Used to be the mustache size, but yes. yes. Anyway. One the mullets, and <laughs> <laughs> now we just get some all of the above. I like those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, the journey and the process is, I think, a lot of this program. You know, really introduces the idea of. So it really changes the perspective, changes the lens on how they approach their sport. I was thinking about like my conception of sports players and trying to do psychology mm. with them my immediate reaction is like oh that could be interesting mm. like in terms of like trying to engage people mm. and trying to like that could be a challenge mm. sort of what i was thinking yeah it can so i mean it's been a challenge for me as well with you know when i've been employed by a club to come in so i'm not employed so you know easy private practice client calls you up it's someone to say you and they they obviously come with a real purpose and away you go yeah like any other psych appointment yeah but yeah when you get employed by the club to deliver psychological services to the players for example and sometimes the coaches and other support staff they're not necessarily saying i really want this yeah and you got to kind of prove yourself yeah at some level and then you know there was an on we had this we had ongoing conversations about well how much do we make voluntary how much do we make mandatory is this an all-in approach that we're all doing this together or is it only for the ones that need it? You know, it's there's a lot of those discussions about how to do it best. Yeah. Because there's this idea that we know it's important. We know the mental part's important. We know mental health is important. But how do we teach it and how do we engage the playing group? Yeah, because there's nothing worse than trying to force people to engage in psychological techniques because they just won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. However, you know, when I was... When I've been, I've been at the professional clubs, they go, well, you know... If they did, if we did told them not to do their recovery or their weights, they wouldn't do it. So it is mandatory. They were just really hard and fast about it. Yeah. yeah. Which, as you can could imagine, that was difficult at times because people sometimes expressed that they didn't feel like they needed to or wanted to do it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Or undermine, or undermine it in session in front of others, which made it even harder because uh, some people were getting something out of it. Yeah. And how do you try and please everyone? even though there are different stages of their, their mental journey in terms of their career. Yeah, I mean, and then is there like an interesting role then as a sports site? Because you're not part of the playing team, for example. Mm, yeah. So you could, you, I could imagine you could feel like a bit of an outsider if, if that stuff starts to kind of come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, to be fair, the club I was at, they were, they were amazing on embedding me in. You know, they, yeah, right. they, they took me to training camps. They put me in the coaching box. I was on the boundary line. I was on the bench. You know, I did everything with them as coaches and other support staff would do. They were quite intentional about that. Yeah. Because they wanted to destigmatize the idea of psych being part of the team. Yeah, right. But still, naturally, that 
you know, naturally people were resistant to it still, but I think they did very well. I mean, did a lot. They went way beyond from a lot of what I've known and what a lot of clubs do in terms yeah. of embedding me in their program. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that with any psychological stuff that there's going to be people who are not into it for, yep. for whatever reason and you just actually like you know not unlike what we're talking about it's like you just have to sit with that and yeah. you know, continue on doing what you're doing and work with where you can yeah but I also think well you know this is a team sport they were playing in so in the end even if you don't feel like you need it or you feel like you've ma- you've maximised your mental potential you still got your teammate and you don't win on your own yeah. so if you've got five teammates in the room that really need to do this work, then you can play a very supportive role in that. Yeah. You can be the listening ear. You can be empathic. You can talk about your journey and your struggles that got you to where you are. So I think there's so much to share still, even if you don't have sole motivation for yourself. Yeah. Um, I think you have a team motivation yeah. to make sure that your teammates are there with you on game day because that's it's exactly what it is. You know, yeah. you, you are dependent on them. Yeah. And also... People can be surprised to learn oh, stuff, yeah. and there's that, that too. I always think that you know they go. People might go. She's. I didn't. I didn't think that I would get anything out of that. Yeah. You know. I mean, and even even like on individual therapy sessions, I've had countless times people go, "Oh, geez, I didn't know I was upset about that." Or, mm. "Geez, actually, that was really that. Geez, that was mm. really bothering me. I didn't realize that." You know, and that kind of. You know, you you engage someone somehow in that process, and they can kind of get to it. Yeah. And sometimes you can say things and, and, you know, that really captures them. So you can say them, give them some real kind of generic information. So I used to do this around, you know, around the word willingness in my mental conditioning program. I just said, you know, you know, everyone out there, they're all motivated to win. Everyone wants to win. So do you like sitting here going, I'm here to, because I want to win is not enough. I go, what are you willing to do? Yeah, right. What are you, what's, what are you willing to sacrifice? Or what are you actually willing to do to be the best? Because it's not about wanting it. Everybody wants it. Mm. So you're no different to anybody else who's just sitting here going, oh, I want to do well. You know, there's more than that. And so what kind of answers do you get with that? Like, well, I, yeah, no, they look pretty, some pretty random ones. Some will say, I will do whatever it takes. Yeah. I would absolutely do, you know, I will stick to this routine. I will, you know, do whatever. Some will say, I'm willing to give myself five days a week, but I need two days a week off of just complete rest. And that would be a reasonable response for a lot of time. Mm. And you get a bit of a mixed response, but you actually get an idea and in front of their teammates how really committed they are to it, to the course. Mm. Mm. And then I could imagine like a secondary effect of that would be that would foster team understanding of where things are at. Yeah, it is. But it's also, it gets them to self-reflect the times when they don't really feel like it. Because that's the issue. I mean, that's the, the reality of being a professional athlete. You'll have days of inspiration, but like it's us going to work, right? There's not... Every single day we bounce out of bed to go to work. There's yeah. days you just go, I'm fatigued or I'm tired or... Some days I just don't want to do it. Or I don't want to do it. Yeah. I mean, as an athlete, they have the same idea as well. Yeah. But so that's when it comes back to the willingness word. So what am I willing to do then? <laughs> but something drives them though. Yeah. And so that's what you got to tap into. Yeah. What What is driving them? And and getting them to know what drives them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But I think this is a dilemma of professional sport now. Yeah. Because professional sport has become, makes it transactional. So what do you mean by that? Uh, I am paid this amount of money to be here for this amount of time. Yeah. And I do this amount of appearances per year. And I'll do these kind of club of club functions and events, mm. which is what my contract says by my manager. Yeah. Which is a bit of a, that's the shame of it, I think. Because of what hollows it out? Or? Yeah, because it's, it's well, it's that word transactional. They're kind of following a contract of what's agreed upon between individual and club, if you like. Yeah, right. 
and that kind of takes out, well, what am I really doing this for? Because when they're eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old kid, it's like, I just want to, I want to play in a, represent a club. I want to go to the Olympics. Oh, I want to. They're just like playing. Yeah. They just, or I just want to, like, this is their dream. But when they kind of get there, so there's not, it's not, it's not everyone, but for some, it's just, uh, well, I'm paid this amount of money to, to turn up and I can do so. Yeah. And that's makes, and it's been, I think, an interesting component in my journey, seeing professional sport versus amateur sport yeah. in terms of what, in terms of that, I think. Yeah. Right. So they're competing competing goals and stuff yeah like and i remember like having a chat to you one time and you were talking about how when you do a i think you were talking about a sport that had you know the local level but then also there was the national team level mm. and versus say like say afl which is just it's just the league yeah right? and so like you can oh. get kind of competing demands between like, am I playing for the team or am mm. I playing for myself to try and get up to that next national level or something like that? Yeah. So, the sport that's kind of fascinated me the most about that we've had some involvement in is soccer. Yeah. So, you know, no one really wants... To, if, you're, if you're a soccer player, I mean, Australia playing in the Australian League or any player of Australia is not really the end goal. No offense to the Australian League. But most players think about they want to go and play in Europe yep. or play in one of the bigger leagues. Yeah. Um, Which would make perfect sense, right? Yeah, that's right. So what I found was not in in like an Australian even our our best level and our national level, the the group doesn't remain the same for more than twelve months. Yeah, so right. there's, there's no teamsmanship really. It's hard to develop because it's not developed over time, and they're kind of together. And then half of them bounce off to another club, and half of them go on loan for three months, and half of them you know it's like it's just it's really a dynamic place. So it's hard to build that kind of culture, like a team culture. Mm, mm. Gosh, yeah, yeah, that would be. Yeah, I mentioned the big challenges like, hey, Michael, <laughs> build team culture and yeah, and kind of like left with that somehow. Yeah, and so then you get sports like, um, I mean, I think a, a topical national team at the moment is the Wallabies, which is the rugby union team who have been struggling now for quite a few years. But so many, they have to play in Australia to be able to play, represent their country. Yep. So representing your country was the biggest honour in rugby union. We're now going to play in the French League, which offers the most money most lucrative is highly desirable for a lot of players now yeah right mm. but you've got to i think it's, it's some rule i think you've got to play i'll say 60 test matches for australia before you can go overseas and play and still represent your country yeah right and that's a lot of test matches it's a lot so they're really making you earn it so if you want to play for australia you've got to play in our league or one of our in our country mm. um or you got to earn playing for to be able to go and play like france or England or whatever that might be. Yeah, so there's like a lot of competing pressures and then that kind of gets back to, I guess, you know, you have these internal states within a match yeah. and you've got to kind of manage that. Yeah. You know, we're not even talking like injuries, it's kind of talking about like, yeah. oh, you know, how am I going to do here? Yeah. Like, am I going to do okay? Or, yeah. you know, maybe I just need to play this game out and not work that hard or yeah. know, just to kind of make my quota or whatever it is. Yeah, so it goes back to the how. How What do you, what do you how do you want to represent yourself here? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What well, drives that? Um, what do you find yeah. interesting about sports psych? Like, you could, like just talking to you, I can hear like the, the passion just sort of, like <laughs> oozing out. Like, what's wh- where's where's that kind of come from for you? Um, well, as you know, you kind of saw you saw me, you know me when I was younger, yeah. and I was an athlete myself. So I've always been, I've always I guess appealed to that approach, and I was always like I had a lot of I had a strong desire to be an athlete when I was younger. So I've always been attracted. To the field, but I guess now it's it's a bit more than that. I'm actually really, I'm actually really intrigued by peak performance. Yep. Like, how do people get to their best, and how do people make? I'm really into people's journeys and their stories of how they 
become such robust characters and what they're prepared to do to get the best to the top of their game. Mm, yeah, because that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like if you're a people person, yeah. I remember one of my lecturers talking about like, you know, people people are interesting. Mm. And she was like a really, really hardcore tough as they come clinician yeah. but then she like softened it's like but people are interesting yeah, yeah. It's like, kind of like that journey about like what are you willing to do how yeah do, how do we get to this point yeah and I, and I actually think my i think now I've, i'll probably adjust a little bit in terms of my what's what, what attracts me a bit more i think you know it's, i think sports psychology is seen as a very sexy psychology there's a lot of kind of glory attached to it you know very fit athletes and and so on there's i mean they're in the entertainment industry it and, sounds quite exciting yeah it's yeah, exciting yeah. you know but as i've kind of gone on i've i've also developed i guess great empathy for some of them as well or many of them actually in terms of what they put themselves through there's something at times, there are times where they're pushing themselves against their will and that's kind of sad or they're doing it for the wrong reasons or they're doing it against their own sense of happiness. And I think now I've got more of a, a global sense of, well, part of me wants to be there for them and help guide them that they don't actually have to do this. Yeah. Um, you know, which I think, unfortunately, I've probably seen a lot of. They, don't, they actually don't enjoy it. They're actually not really that motivated by it, but they feel still compelled to do it. Yeah. So my empathy for that has really increased in over my career and I'm a bit more attuned to that now. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's a really kind of common core feature of psychologists and good psychologists around kind of finding the empathy around someone's journey and helping them out with that, whatever, yeah. whatever it is that they want to do and yeah. find helping people find what it is they want to do. I mean, yeah. yeah, it was, you know, I think I'm just trying to give a good example I can give that was recent and I think this one's probably it. I've got a an athlete, um, a runner, and he's just got injured and he's had a history of injuries and so on and so forth. And he's, he really dropped, his mood dropped significantly, you know, acutely depressed if you like. Post-injury had to be in a, in a moon boot for six weeks and just got that news in his first two weeks, he really dropped down. And he's actually got some other skills, he's, actually got a, he's, got a, he's studying and... He's quite a smart guy and I think he's got a lot of other characteristics will hold him good stead in the future. But the old me would have gone, okay, how do we get you back on board? How do we get you in foot when the boot's off and how do we get you back focused and push, going? Push, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have been, I would have probably been swept up in that journey. Yeah. Where I when I saw him, I said, you know what this is? This is I said, as much as you're suffering right now, this is a this is a red alert for us. And he goes, What do you mean? I said that your identity is too skewed in being an athlete. And not as a person, mm. and who you're going to be when your athletic career is over. Yeah, yeah. And I went straight into that. Yeah. And buried it in what are you doing outside? Tell me bits about our other identity. Yep. You know, and what are your friendships like? Are they all are they just about running, or are they outside running? You know, where's your balance here? Mm. And the rest of my focus was went that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because so that that's that concept of life complexity. Mm. So if someone is doesn't have life complexity mm. like i think about like a like a metaphor of like a house or something mm. like if it's only got one foundation you knock that foundation out yeah the house is gonna fall over yeah but you know if it's you've got lots of foundations and one gets bumped out yep. like the house is not uh, like you're just more robust yeah that's like right that. no builders at, at the spot. <laughs> I, I know that's probably an unusual metaphor but but i mean I th that's that's a concept i often think about like in in the medical profession like i work with a lot of doctors mm. and by the nature of their training yeah. everything can become medical focused yeah like, so like they have to particularly if you want to become a consultant you have to work very very hard you know there's a lot of commitment to uh, these very very 
difficult exams that you would literally have to study for for 12 yeah. months and yep. then let you know not everyone passes that and so it's very easy to fall into a trap of being only that focused and then if you fail mm. in that because that's what happens mm. at times mm. then people can spiral very very quickly and there's a huge problem with mental health of doctors and stuff like that so well yeah that's right um, but you <laughs> this may not be the most politically correct thing to say but what do people complain about when they go and see doctors yeah well they're not paying attention to them they're burnt out that kind of stuff yeah yeah they, they, they don't have that kind of they, they don't have that communicate they don't have the communication skills that personal interaction yeah. their knowledge is through the roof yeah but most people when they complain about doctors is that they they didn't connect with me or they didn't yeah. try to communicate well, with me well i mean i i think i think probably more i i don't hear so much about people complaining about doctors but i certainly hear people go i've got this great gp mm. or i've got this, yeah, oh, this great yeah, consultant yeah. you go what is it was it that they knew the test better yeah, than yeah. the other one no. probably not mm. it was that they spoke to me for five minutes about my travels mm. um before we even got to talking about mm. anything or you know they explained something in such a way that no one had ever taken the time mm. you know in that it's that and if you haven't got that mental space to do it yeah you know that kind of stuff so what you're talking about actually is kind of similar to what i think i've kind of spent more time leaning into now with coaches and support staff is treat them with people don't ask them everything about their injury or don't ask them about their performance all the time ask them about them yeah they're not just the leg yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like in, in in the hospital setting it's often it's like so how about the rest of the body yeah not just the tumor right, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, can you tell me a little bit about that yeah that's right like, you might be able to fix that but yeah do we want to do that Does yeah that person want to do that yeah, so it's that kind of bedside manner that we're talking about, isn't it? In yeah. terms of, it's not the skills we just have, it's everything around that and how we can kind of communicate that. Yeah, definitely. Do you ever get barriers like with, uh, I, guess, I mean, it could be the, with the mental conditioning thing or, the, or, or just sports psychology stuff, like where is it difficult mm. to kind of uh, work in this field? Yeah, well, I find the, one of the bigger, well, the bigger barriers, I was listening to your uh, the Chronic Pain yeah. last week and I heard her talk about the whole she's the last point of call when everything else is not working yeah. <laughs> and I could really resonate with that yeah it's a really really common problem yeah. like it's like oh we get the psychologist in like, yeah maybe 24 months ago yeah that's right <laughs> that's it yeah yeah that's right so it's kind of similar sometimes in performance as well like everyone's tried everything and it's like oh well just strums the sports like <laughs> yeah. see what magic he can kind of throw in there yeah. so I can definitely identify with that I think the you know the confidential aspects the confidential aspect of what we do yeah. so most of the time you know athletes are referred to us by their coaches you know their parents mm. or, or other kind of supportive person yeah so obviously they're, they're incentivized in terms of how well that person's doing and they got really good intent about it but obviously we want to keep a safe place and keep things confidential as much as possible yeah and and so I guess what I'm what the barrier is here is it's actually really useful to have three-way conversations so I'm actually really one for bringing coaches involved if there's parents involved, bring the parents in yeah, and in really including them in the process because coaches, in terms of the sports I deal with, generally have a lot of contact with their athletes. They're with them every day for some period of time. I'm with them hour a week a lot of time at best. Yeah. So, yes, it's good that I can introduce it to them, but the coach is there with them all the time. Yeah. So, teaching them the skills to work with the athlete is more important to me because yeah. they can do it forever you know whatever they, however that long that relationship lasts for yeah it's not unlike doing family work mm. with children like that's too. right so one of the mainstays like if amy was here mm. she'd be jumping in she'd talk about attachment for a bit mm. and then 
but she she would always talk about it, like she does a lot of work with the family. Yeah. It's not just like doing one on one stuff with the yeah. kid, right? Because you might be able to intervene successfully with an individual, mm. but they walk out the door and yeah. for 167 hours of the of the next week, yeah, they're not with you. And and so if that system is still unchanged, mm. like it's a struggle yeah that's right and you know when i was working and when you're working for a club was you know who's your employer you know who's who's the client here in that yeah. one and then we're talking about oh they've got a there's a they'll talk about the players confide in you that they're going through some let's say a personal problem or depression or something like that and you go to a meeting and they're all talking they're going to a selection meeting and they're talking about well you know he's he's no good at the moment may as well just you know drop him or cut him whatever like what, what's your role there without consent you put your hand up and go oh he actually needs some empathy right now yeah <laughs> and we need to look after him and all get around him and show a lot of support now yeah. most of the time i'll be quite proactive knowing that that conversation might come up one day yeah. and i'll say do you who do you who do you feel comfortable with me sharing and how much because i'm i'm wondering that when i'm in a club environment people there's people talking about you all the time and there might be some opportune times where i can be supportive for you in that situation yeah but their answer is their answer. I've got to, I've got to respect that, right? So yeah. they might say, oh, "I want you to say absolutely nothing." Yeah. And I was going to let slide whatever, let, you know, whatever I need to. Not that that was regular. Most of them are pretty open, you know, because they knew your intent was to support. Yeah. Um, but it does you, you've got to put in their dynamic places when you're involved in a club and you're kind of constantly trying to work out what you can say to whom and when and yeah, it's there's a lot of conversations there because there's so many resources for the players now. You know, they've everyone's talking about them. Everyone's doing something with them, and you got to be, you got to know the time to best intervene. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really fascinating and interesting because yeah. that's one of the things I, the listeners to this pod would have heard me talk about before, which is I like working in hostels because it's not just that one on one with mm. the patient. You have to kind of give feedback about, mm. you know, like oh, I just saw this person. This is what I think's going on. Mm. This is what I. You know, and I will tell dogs, this is what I need you to do. Yeah. Or when you speak to them, this is how I think you should best speak to them. Yeah. You know, to get yeah. the result that we want. Yeah. You know, or, or to get the result that they want or something yeah. like that, you know. And yeah, sort of, it, I, I find that quite interesting mm. because you have to think in a more complex kind of way. Yeah, and in right. a useful way. Yeah. Because like, I think, you know, this sometimes some psychologists can kind of, I guess you know, sit in their ivory tower somewhat and yeah. I know what's best and I've written a report and everyone should recognise <laughs> it and, and, and really they're sort of a bit divorced from it all really. Yeah, we're, yeah it's, we're looking at more of a systems approach, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, what, what is this in the greater system? Yep. And I think that's what sports psychology is, you know, largely about when you're working for in the, you know, particularly employed by a professional club or a big organisation. But even in private world, you know, you still... I still like the idea of engaging the coach. I mean, typically, the coach, um, you know, can be others, but I typically like engaging because I think it's a really they're a really important part of the journey. Whatever I'm teaching them, particularly around the performance enhanced mental skills component, yeah. absolutely. And does it work? I mean, I guess I mean, I mean, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so much. It's easier to work with. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, and people find that they're able to kind of incorporate that mental conditioning kind of stuff in and, and yep. what would be a success story around that? Give us an idea about what that yeah. looks like. Yeah, okay, yeah. So there was, I remember there was one particular athlete who just completely worried about who was in the stands watching yep. um, and there was a bit of kind of parental component in that. Yeah, right. And he just could not concentrate 
very much at all, let alone, you know, a proportion of the time you need to be on the field. And so the, what the mental condition does was actually allowing that, that they were going to be there and those thoughts were always going to be there. So he was spending so much time trying to pretend yeah. <laughs> they weren't there or get the thought out of his mind. But it was like, it was like the, the pink elephant in the room. Try not to think about it. Of course, he was thinking more and more about it. So... Yeah. He just used his grounding exercise. He put a bit of tape on his wrist and wrote a couple of words just to remind himself of what his focus points were. And it was as simple as that to kind of refocus him back to where he needed to be. Hmm. And this is what I also like about it. It has a real nice domino effect in terms of once you start releasing that, in terms of releasing the thoughts or the idea of them being there, it just gets easier and easier, doesn't yeah. it? Because once you start getting that system into play, you just start overcoming it really easily yeah and you just to form a nice new habit there's the um there's a thought and yeah. just like kind of let it pass I mean, through just to bring it back to like doing clinical work mm. you know because i often feel like clinical work there's a certain level of performance mm. that you have to do and yeah. at, and certainly attention yeah and like when i was a junior clinician mm. like just the the anxiety about what i was doing and whether i was any good and and it's such a common and the imposter thing, which mm. we talked about at the start. So every psychologist listening yeah. will have have at some point had that imposter thing, yeah. you know. And yeah, it's sort of interesting over time. You can kind of you learn how to kind of go. All right, well, I fucked that question up, <laughs> but let's just keep going. Yep, and let, let's just you know get back to it. Well, I think you've done. I mean, I think you've done this well tonight in terms of this interview. You've really brought it back to you know situations that psychologists understand in terms of our own performance and yeah, probably what we have. <laughs> what we haven't touched on though is that where there's there's performances everywhere now. So we we've been really talking about sport, mm. but performances are very diverse, aren't they? Now, I mean, us as psychologists, you know, yeah. we talk about that, but you know, like musicians and singers and actors and so on and so forth. One of the most difficult. Even though many people say it was the most difficult psychological performances, any musician for an audition sounds horrendous. Mm. You know, where there's like a curtain across them, they can't see their judges. Yeah. Or, or for you know, the other examples. You're talking X Factor, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Or the, <laughs> <laughs> well, the other one was psychiatry. I've had psychiatrists for their exams. Yeah, right. Where they have the assessor just staring at them blank face as they're doing their assessment. Yeah. Same with anaesthetists. Yeah. So I've kind of had those examples and their examiners just a blank, you know, they, they really interpret the blank, the blank face yeah, and they get completely engaged in this person's really unimpressed with what I'm saying and doing and just going and then they get completely lost into that. Yes, no, definitely. <laughs> I was doing, for the, for the masters I've been doing, we had to administer WACEs and WISCs, which are the intelligence tests for adults and for children. And we had to, before we were allowed to do that as part of the course, we had to administer the tests to one of a number of people at, yeah. the, at the university. And of course, I got lumped with the incredibly <laughs> experienced professor who trained under Beck and, <laughs> and, 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 and just dead dead face yep. and and i was i was so unbelievably focused yeah and then so when when he said all right you know look you you haven't made any errors we've only got one more test to go you know he's giving me good news i was like you're gonna have to repeat that to me. am i doing okay <laughs> like i was so focused on what was going on and i love how he's like he trained under beck so therefore he must know everything yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does yeah, yeah. He, just, yeah that's a rigid belief isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah he yeah. It wasn't he flicked the opportunity like his grandmother knows someone such and gave him the introduction that gave him like a three-week ride and beck met him for two minutes and then didn't sleep to him after that yeah, like no. <laughs> yeah 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 but yeah but it's, yeah it's interesting like you yeah. tell that story to yeah yourself, you do don't you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think we the other performances we kind of 
forget about as well. But I mean, you know, probably that would be the general audience would forget about. But as us now in this kind of field, we say all different types of performances coming up all the time. Mm. And workplaces, you know, we're using psych a lot because we're, that's what we're talking about here tonight. But all sorts of workplaces are really trying to tap into the sports psychology component. Yeah, it is interesting to think about because like I'm such a deficit-focused clinician. Mm. But I could certainly see how you could apply this to yep. a lot of stuff yeah it's got a nice flow to it yeah, yeah that kind of like real positive kind of <laughs> you'll you'll find this quite funny so you know part of my practice and so on we kind of deliver all sorts of kind of well-being workshops as well as performance ones but what always fascinates me the most is a lot of whole lot of workplaces uh, we've got one i've got one little kind of one hour session or about 75 minute session called it's called what high performers do yeah and workplaces bring up and want me to come in and deliver that. It's not about, you know, how to remain focused for this amount of time or uh, how to look after yourself, you know, or keeping work-life balance, whatever. It's what high performers do. Yeah. So, what does this tell me? It tells me that no matter what your performance is, people want to know what that's about. They want to know how to maximize the talents and abilities that they have. Yeah. They want to know what the skill set is to get the best out of themselves. Yeah. doesn't matter what they do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like in any field. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But and when you think about it, there's always he might be playing ping pong against your younger brother. Like there's always you can you can taint anything into a performance. Yeah. And go, how do I do that better? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, mm. I've had a great hour talking to you. You gonna stick around for things we came across? Sure. Yeah, all right. Well, you've been listening to Two Shrinks Boat. Suggest reasonable explanations for things. So uh, this is part of the show where I tell everyone, thank you for listening. Michael, you've become a new listener to Two Shrinks Pod. I have. You've given us five stars here. I do, yes. Well, have I actually gone online and given yes. you the official five stars? Uh, no, I haven't. You can do that at Apple Podcasts <laughs> or if you listen to your podcast. Uh, you can also uh, check out our website, Two Shrinks Pod. Follow us on Twitter. Had some retweets uh, by... Lots of people during Psych Week, which was very exciting. Thank you to everyone. And you can check out our website. There's a, we're about to go to things we came across. And you, know, you can always find funny articles that uh, we've talked about, Amy and I. Uh, I'm going to keep it short and sharp. See, I've, I don't have Amy here interrupting okay. me. Okay. So, nailing it. All right. <laughs> performance, Michael, performance. I'm just focusing on you right now. <laughs> And we're back. So this is things we came across. So this is the palace show where we talk about, I don't know, we just change tune a little bit and kind of talk about something funny, interesting that we've come across during the week. So I was out Friday night and waiting for somebody, waiting for dinner. And I was a little bit hungry. Hey, we used to work together, right? Yes. Did you ever see me hangry? Um, I saw you emotional. <laughs> 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 Do you get hangry? Yeah, I, no, no, I, not really. But I, I, I remember back to being on the theme, athletic days where I used to, if I bonked from not having enough food when I was doing like endurance events, yep. then absolutely. You're yeah, angry and hungry at the oh, same time. Yeah. So yeah, so I was, I was thinking about being hangry and, uh, and I certainly, when I was, we used to work in drug and alcohol, mm. like I reckon I... Like at least one, maybe a, cu- a couple of cases where someone had a drug and alcohol problem, and I eventually did like a good behavioural analysis, and it's like, dude, you're hangry. That's <laughs> that's what's driving your drinking or your whatever problem. 
let's just try having some food. And at least in one case, just, that was it. Solved yeah, the problem. Yeah. Anyway, so I found an article and it's by Jennifer McCormack and Christine Lindquist from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, and it's published in Emotion in 2018. So this year, it's a very recent article and it's called Feeling Hangry. Basically, many people feel emotional when they're hungry or hangry, but there's no real research uh, on this psychological Mm -hmm. mechanisms underlying such states. So, guided by psychological constructiveness and uh, affect misattribution theories, these researchers propose that hunger alone doesn't account for feeling hangry. Like, it's it's more complex than just being hungry. Mm. And so, they talk about it as that we experience hunger as emotional when we conceptualize their affective state as negative Mm. and that high arousal emotions specifically like in a negative context that kind of stuff so it's not so they did three studies very impressive to look at whether hunger shifts affective perception in negative but not neutral or positive contexts (laughs) so and then in the third study so that was study one, two, and then the third study, they used laboratory experiment and they demonstrated that hunger causes individuals to experience negative emotions and to negatively judge a researcher. So in the room, but only when they're, but, it's, but it seems to be only when people are not like aware of mm. their own kind of uh, state. Yeah. That kind yeah. of makes sense. Like they're not aware of what's going on. Yeah. So, because um, if they were, they'd hopefully be going to get some food. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or their partners like jamming a biscuit. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Otherwise, it'd be a form of self harm, right? If you <laughs> if you knew it was happening and you weren't choosing to eat. So, yeah, I'm like that. That that's research to me. That's, <laughs> that is useful. <laughs> well, we can all we can all associate with it, can't we? Also, like being a parent, like you get a real understanding. Like, oh, I'm going to get some food into that child mm. before shit hits the fan. Well, you haven't seen my boys. You don't have to shove food down their throat. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that mental so conditioning, their performance. Mm-hmm. It's like eating, eating, eating. I've got to eat. eat. Yeah, that's right. They've got to keep on fueling themselves on a regular basis. That's how you get best performance. So uh, that, that's me. I'm just keeping it short and yeah. sharp. Well, mine's more, ironically, mine's food. We didn't plan this, but mine's food related as well. Okay. So I've kind of I've kind of researched a bit more on this basically because I just saw it presenting more and more often, um, particularly with particular type of sports, um, endurance ones was um, orthorexia. So what's that? So orthorexia is like an obsession around the purity and health of foods. Yeah, right. So generally, when we're talking about eating disorders of you know anorexia and bulimia, yep. we're talking about them non-eating, so the the quantity, if you like. Yeah. Um, this is all about the quality of their yeah, foods, right. but the obsession of the foods that they're eating yeah. and how pure or healthy they are. Is it highly correlated with hipsterism? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in Brunswick. Yeah, uh, um, no, but it is correlated um, with. There's been no direct research with athletes but it's yep. been there's been research that um people have got who are very kind of physical uh, other extreme sports yep. but also really i guess proud of their physiques to see themselves as very fit and healthy and strong um, yep. it's associated with that group yeah right because i guess it's that sort of perfectionistic yeah, kind of element yes. and there's that sort of attention to detail and that's control right. i guess control yes it's probably the yeah that's right kind of come back to yeah 
perfectionism was actually one of the other characteristics associated with it yeah, right. as well. So it's not seen as a, a clinical, it's not in the DSM-5, but maybe in the DSM-6. Um, I think we'll see it more and more often. Yeah. Um, and it's quite, it's, when you think about it, like in our community, we often hear about all the superfoods, yeah. um, about, you know, carb-free diets and that we're on, you know, we don't eat bread and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in our kind of, gen, uh, in our general community, don't we? So if you're, and how do you say the word? Ortho- Orthorexia. So if you're an orthorexic and you're hangry, <laughs> what are you going for as, as the key? As, as, as the, as the meal? Organic bananas. Organic bananas. <laughs> organic bananas. <laughs> but yeah, I think I mean I think the interesting component is because the 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 difficulty of the most of a lot of the eating components as well is based on measurements, isn't it? They are the weight or yeah, right. um, BMI, for example. But this is all a real. You can't. There's no measurements involved here, so they don't. They may not necessarily be undernourished as such. They might be, yeah. but they may not have particular body image issues. But they might. So what I've seen in terms of I guess my area, so a lot of athletes, is actually a lot of the time, it's actually not about body image. Mm. It's about performance. Mm. So their obsession about the purity of food is that they believe they're going to perform better. Yeah, right. Yeah, or, or would it kind of go into like health benefits as well? Like, or kind of like I'm not putting bad stuff into my body. Yeah, yeah. You know, toxins. Because like in the oncology world, you get a lot of people like, oh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm into yeah. like making all this natural stuff. Yes. You know, this is all the kind of thing. And, you know, people who say decline chemotherapy, yeah. even though there's a good evidence base for it, but they're going to go off and eat organic pomegranates or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people can choose what they want to do, mm. but yeah. Yeah, I think from an athletic perspective, it's more about what what drives it in the end is yeah. performance. That they believe they'll perform better if they stick to this particular diet or these particular foods or so on mm. and so forth. Yeah, because it's interesting because it, it doesn't sound like, you know, because it's not harming their body mm. per se. It's probably more something that would, would take up time, you know, or, or take up money, mm. really. Yep. It's, 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 but then I guess but, it... Is it problematic for people? Like, well, yes, because I mean, the psychological element is they're you know distracted and they're because they're so obsessed by it, um, so it really interrupts their day-to-day functioning. But also, when they do break, so for example, I've had um, athletes talk about well, they had two pieces of toast that morning, and therefore that's carbs and bread, and that's really bad for them. You know, the shame and guilt and anxiety that's attached to that is really significant as well. So yeah, I hope they don't <laughs> see my toast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so. <laughs> As we sit here with these um, biscuits between us. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I think the psychological element is really, really important because, of the, again, the story, I guess, they create in their own mind of and their rigid beliefs around their food. Mm. Um, it's quite, it's actually kind of the polar opposite to hangry because, like, hangry, you're not, you're not aware. Mm. Kind of, it's like, hey, I'm hungry yeah. and I'm in this state and what's yeah. going on with the world. Oh, no, they, they, they're very aware and obsessive about it. Mm. Yeah, it's a real obsessive quality, I guess, about it. But I think, I, I mean, I, I guess I notice in general community, I think we're more attuned to talking more about the quality of foods. And I notice in my in my private work, the amount of discussion around their food and, and how they work around it and the guilt that they feel when they eat particular types of food. But also like that there's can be like a one-upmanship mm. around like, oh. you know, like that, oh, you know, I've got this stuff yeah. and I do all these things yeah. and I make my own stuff and oh, I brought my water in with my fruit in it or, or, yep. or whatever it is. Coconut water. Coconut water, <laughs> yeah. Apparently that's good for you. I don't know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Mike, thanks for so so much for coming in. No, thanks for having me. Um, you have been listening to Two Shrinks Pod. See you soon. Thanks, Hunter. Mm-hmm.